0: Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and everything else. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction.
1: I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science.
0: A lot of our science and science fiction is shaped by the idea of evolution that Charles Darwin and his buddies cooked up in the mid-19th century. It's helped us to understand species diversity But it's also led to a lot of misunderstandings, especially when it comes to sex and reproduction. So to help us separate out the good from the bad, we are super lucky to be talking with biologist and science journalist Emily Willingham, whose book Fallacy, and that's spelled with a PH, is all about where penises fit into our evolution, but also about how the science of sex has shaped our pop culture from romance movies to dating advice books. Welcome, Emily. Hi, glad to be here.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm super excited about your book. It's an incredibly riveting read. And I wanted to start by just like getting some definitions out there on the table, because one of the things about an entire book about penises is it turns out that like penises are nothing at all like what I thought they were. And you talk a lot about penises and vaginas, male and female. But like I said, those definitions don't really work. So I wonder if you could just tell us how you're defining penis and also what is this thing called an intromittum?
2: Okay, so I do have a whole chapter about what makes a penis. And it turns out that that's a really f- complex topic. <laughs> but, <laughs> it <is>. um, <laughs> turns out it's not maybe what anybody thought. But what I did do before I really before I even started writing, I was thinking, Oh, my God, there are so many names for these organs that you insert into another animal for the purposes of mating and reproduction. And so There are so many names, they kind of have a lot of different uses, and they're not simply confined to what biologists would view, at least in non-human animals, as one sex or the other. And so I decided to come up with the term intromittum, which is the singular, which is the thing that gets intromitted, and an intromission is an insertion, and the plural Ah. is intromita, with an A, which is a neutral, I believe. Some linguist is probably going to come track me down if I'm wrong, a neutral form of the Latin noun. So I was going for neutral when I decided (laughs) to use this term. So
0: an intromittum is just any organ that you use to inseminate or to to pass, not even inseminate, but to just pass along genetic material.
2: Yeah, to um, send along a gamete inside another organism, <laughs> typically to reproduce. <laughs> yeah, typically, yeah, I mean, but <laughs> I don't spot. even know if
0: it's typically, yeah, it's just I like, don't know either. Yeah, <laughs> it's, but it, it, but the other thing um, that's interesting is that these organs aren't always passing along what we would think of as sperm, they also pass along eggs. So you don't have to be kind of a... Whatever a male is, Let, let's just say that we understand what a male is. You can also be passing eggs along.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, there are there are people who will definitely, and I'm one of them, get into the finer points of whether or not quote you know passing these gametes is an internal process or an external one. But a couple of examples: the uh, female seahorse, for example, has a, an extension that she uses to pop some gametes into a pouch on the male. And another example: there's a whole genus now of animals that live in caves where the female does something similar, except she really inserts into the male. And so it is considered internal transmission. So she has an intromittum that she inserts into the male of these species and transmits her, you know, gametes.
0: Yeah. So these are like really fancy tubes Yeah, Can you tell us, just as like a kind of a greatest hits moment, you have so many interesting intromita in this book. Can you tell us about some of your favorites or some of the ones that really um, helped you understand how complex penises actually are?
2: Um, I would have to say... Yeah, it's going to be in it's some kind of you know insect, right? <laughs> because <laughs> they are all over the place with this stuff, and I feel like the flea was kind of a you know would surprise most people with its apparatus that it has, and the fact that it's coiled up. You know, at many times its length inside the flea body, <laughs> and you know the way it comes out and like shows its way in, but there's still some coils that are doing something inside the flea, and the other one would be barnacles, which are you know they can modify them and they can become thicker or shorter you know they can they have these like little millipede like attachments on them that make them look like a toilet brush almost I mean they're just really striking so those are a couple there's so many (laughs) (laughs) I can write a book about them there's so many (laughs)
0: Huh. And why do we think of these organs like these spring-loaded organs, the bristle brush organs, why don't we think of these as all being somehow related to the human penis? Like why do we keep comparing ourselves to these animals?
2: We are of course a self-centered species. The thing about mammals or actually any animals that make eggs is is that you know our intermedium has our across across board kind of have a common origin whereas when you get into these arthropods they they just make it out of anything it seems like so you know hey, i've got some scales on my thorax i'm gonna that's gonna you know eventually shape itself into an intramidum you know uh-huh. the spiders they've got their little punching bag i mean their boxing glove you know things that they insert into the you know female the bed bugs or <laughs> you know they use this, something that is a lot like a hypodermic needle in terms of how it's inserted It's just all over the place. And so we're actually not very exciting. We seem to think our penises are extremely exciting. And I know they (laughs) are to us, right? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I think they're really fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, it's really, it's not super impressive in terms of bells and whistles when you look around at the rest of what's going on.
1: Well, now I find bedbugs even more horrifying than I did before. So thanks for that. You know, my question is, What does studying, you know, the intramitta of other creatures tell us about us? Tell us about human reproduction and why is it useful to do that? That's
2: a great question. Thanks for asking it. Um, it was really kind of the motivation for the book. You know that in evo-psych, for example, there have been arguments that the human penis has very specific accoutrements that are designed for, like, to compete with, you know, to have the sperm compete with other sperm and the vagina and, then you know, all these things that kind of um, implicate women in certain, you know, perhaps, unflattering behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to intromit here and say by evo-psych, you mean the field of evolutionary psychology.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it, you know, it's not the whole field, but there are certainly some, you know, people who subscribe to these interpretations and you start to look around at other penises, even among other primates, and you realize that ours is not, it's not, got these accoutrements. It doesn't have, as uh, some of the, you know, sexual selection people call it, you know, the armature (laughs) (laughs) that you find on some of these. Like, if you look at a seed beetle, which is this kind of, um, lives in legume seeds, which, you know, sorry, again, Charlie this may put you off of those as well. (laughs) You know, their larvae burst out of these um, legume seeds, which is why they're called seed beetles. Their intramidum is, is like a I don't know. A mace had a baby with a toilet brush, had a baby with Captain Hook. It's really oh. got a lot going on. And <laughs> it, that, that's because sea beetles have a very complicated coevolution back and forth between what's happening inside the female reproductive tract and what's happening with that intramidum. And we don't really show that kind of really nuanced dance with all of these like specialized structures that you know have been kind of going back and forth over millennia and being shaped one on one side one on the other and so it's really it's a kind of an all-purpose intermittent ours is as you may know you can stick those into just about anything reasonably successfully right (laughs) and You know, it's not going to get completely hung up with spikes and all this other stuff, which makes it, you know, it's fun because of that.
0: Mm -hmm. Why do other animals need to develop intromita that have all these spikes and armor and and springs? And what's going on there?
2: Well, the leading hypothesis for that is that because the females commit more to either, you know, the development of little baby organisms, or if you want to extend it out even to care after they exist, not necessarily with seed beetles, but with some others, that their role is almost to really be as careful as possible in terms of with whom they mate and how, what the outcome is. And so there's a sort of a tendency where there's tension in the mating process for the female to sort of have kind of obstacles you know, that interfere with the ability of just any old intermittent to wander in there and leave some gametes behind. And then you get co-evolution for the successful intermittent that carry features that do get around those obstacles. And so that goes back and forth between the two sexes because the males usually, you know, they don't invest that much. They make some Stuff they leave it they leave.
0: Mm-hmm. But that's not what we're seeing with humans. I mean, one of the things I thought was so cool about your book is that you keep kind of coming back to this theme that the human penis is actually not made for fighting. It's it's not one of these kinds that you know they're actually even when they're hard they're pretty soft. You know they're they're soft friendly little tubes. And yeah. they're made for, you say, for, for love and intimacy. And I wonder yeah. if you could talk about that kind of in a biological sense. Like, how do we get to that place by looking at the biology?
2: Well, I just think the general pattern is the fewer features that the intermedium has then the more likely there's going to be sort of like a complex courtship and intimate behavior between two potential mating partners and this expectation that you're going to do, go through a checklist of behaviors all of that negotiation happens before there's intermission and we're like that whereas with something like a you know a seed beetle there's not really all that negotiation necessarily the negotiation happens where the rubber hits the road during intermission. <laughs> Sorry, they don't use rubbers to be clear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so ours is shaped more like, you know, this is just another part of the fun of developing this, you know, attachment between two people who are three or four, however many are planning to share some intimacy together. So we do all this before intermission.
0: So basically, for the seed beetle, the the act of intermission is kind of equivalent to the human act of, like, going on a first date and, like, asking a bunch of awkward questions and, like, deciding if you're attracted to each other. Like, they don't do that because they don't have Tinder for, well, as far as we know,
2: they don't have yeah, Tinder. Yeah, there's no for, seed beetle Tinder, I don't think. Yeah, yeah.
0: We, we haven't found it yet, but they do have this kind of elaborate back and forth that's all biological.
2: It's it's all on the ground where, you know, the physical structures are meeting and, you know, the females got a, a sort of a structural response there and the male has a structural response and evolution selects over time on both sides where they do this dance back and forth. Their dance is right there mm-hmm. where these structures meet, whereas ours and a lot of other organisms where, you know, the intramidum is not super fancy, we do a dance beforehand that's pretty complicated in a lot of cases.
0: It's so interesting. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the cultural fallout from all of these misconceptions. One of the things that you say very early in your book, Emily, is um, you're quoting from the important scientific film, The Princess Bride. And you say, you know, people talk a lot about survival of the fittest, but it
2: doesn't mean what they think it means. So what does it mean? Well, I do think we ought to probably maybe consider changing that phrase. People t- tend to interpret that as having something to do with strength. And I think that that has bled over into this idea of um, what's selected for at the genital level as well, that it has to do with strength and winning, right? And in the end, you know, your win is that you survive and reproduce and that your gene variants have representation in the next generation. That doesn't have to do with being strong. It just has to do with being selected (laughs) by your environment, right? I mean, you can be, you know, as weak as unsalted potatoes and still be selected as long as it's a great environment for being an unsalted potato. So...
1: Mm -hmm. which I'm
2: not meaning to equate to human penises as unsalted potatoes. But, you know, the idea is that, that, you know, it's not a matter of strength and it's not even really a matter of winning as much as it is a matter of being chosen for having a fit in a given environment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in basically this idea that sexual selection is all on the female side and that the male is basically just like available and that the male has to kind of You know, find a part has to convince a partner to to mate with him. And, you know, I'm interested in what your research has shown about, you know, that in terms of like the functioning of the, the genitalia and also just all the cultural baggage that we put onto it right well there are a couple
2: of ways there are a couple of sort of forms of sexual sexual selection which is a subset of natural selection you can have males fighting with each other to gain you know sort of supremacy in which case that is kind of a winning thing right. and you know you, you would see that with the you know, things that have antlers that's what they do um when the female is making the choice that can either be something before a population occurs or it can be you know, on the ground there in her genital tracts where if there are little pockets and things get stuck where she stores sperm or she kind of, you know, there's like some maybe version of sperm sorting going on. You have to have more than one mate, the female, for her to be making any choice like this. So uh. if you see species where females, you know, mate with more than one male, especially in a pretty short period of time, you can infer from that that there's probably she's making some kind of a choice on the ground possibly in her genital tract about which male, you know, is going to win the gamete race there. And again, that comes down to the fact that she has to invest a lot. Usually the female does in, you know, in the, the production of the offspring. And in some cases even carrying that out to parenting of some kind. So,
1: but, but this idea of competition over like it, this idea that the female is a resource that, that the male has to compete over if, doesn't it kind of oversimplify the process? Because obviously, the way that genitals function, both parties have to be kind of into it for it to, you know, function optimally. Well, at least among humans, yeah. Yeah, among humans,
2: absolutely. But, you know, the, consider the duck. For <laughs> <Right? example>. uh, <laughs> the duck.
0: duck penis. The, the ducks. ducks. The ducks. ducks. Yeah, like, they're the worst. They,
2: They can be the worst. They have, you know, there's forced copulation, which is, you know, I don't want to call it rape because it's a human crime and construct, but it's forced copulation in some ducks. And, you know, the female actually is not necessarily, you know, volitionally consenting to that. And if you look at the duck vagina, you see that there's some co-evolution between the features of that vagina to resist this forced insertion relative to the features of that corkscrew explosively emerging penis on the male. And, you know, those are signs that this is not, you know, something that everybody's like gone through the whole courtship process right. to agree to. Right. Yeah. Ducks sort of
0: famously have like penises that are incredibly long and, and like, have these complex shapes, right? Like they, yes, they yeah. aren't just a, I mean, I've, I've seen them described as springs, but like they can have all kinds of weird twists and turns and.
2: Yeah. They, mm-hmm. they, they alarmingly, they emerge very alarmingly quickly and you know, you can have a duck <laughs> penis that torques in one direction the corks through in one direction. The vagina may corks through in the opposite direction as though to unscrew it.
1: Wow. When it's, you know, yeah. Oh
2: my God with the 4th century. And they have cul-de-sacs and all kinds of other stuff that just like blind ends, you know, <laughs> because, you know, the female, you know, not you know, no female duck is consciously going, well, we'll choose these sperm. But, you know, there are choices being made there on the ground.
0: And then how does that then color our perception of our own mating rituals among humans? Like, it feels like a lot of our research, scientific research on animals has kind of Led human male scientists to try to fit our culture into these kind of brutal scenarios that we learn about from ducks.
2: Yeah, I've seen some of that, those unfortunate efforts. I mean, that's part of the lesson of this book is if you, you look at penises and the more accoutred they are, you know, the more bells and whistles they have, the more likely you are to be on the duck side of things versus a you know, sort of kind of featureless version of an intramidum and a species that has a high social demand. Mm-hmm. You don't expect to see the duck side of things much at all except as a, you know, something that's unacceptable. So that's an important takeaway from looking at, if you look at all species. Another thing I want to add is we're alone. We are the only member, living member of our genus. We are separated by our closest living relatives by millions of years. And it will always be somewhat of an error to try to extrapolate, especially from any individual species about our own behaviors or what we should quote, should or should not be
1: doing. So so a rule of thumb, or perhaps we should say a rule of penis, is that <laughs> the more complexity and the more kind of, you know, attachments and add-ons and kind of, you know, robot things and whatever mm-hmm. flamethrower Barings. the penis has, the, uh, the more flamethrowers the penis has, the more likely it is to be used for forced copulation.
2: I would say... That is a possibility or just tension. You know, the female Mm -hmm. is probably mating with multiple males and making some choices there. And that's not what our penises or our vaginas look like as humans. They don't seem to have those features.
0: What's the story that our penises and vaginas tell about how we evolved to
2: to hook up? It's funny because there are so many stories. I don't know which one you would want me to choose, but I mean, in my opinion, the story is, is that we have brains and that's what we should have. We would have more involved in our hookups than our genitalia necessarily. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think that connections on so many other levels beyond, wow, look at that dick is, you know, (laughs) that's how we operate. Right. And I think that what we have upstairs is way more relevant.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's been a long time since I've just like made a guy whip his dick out on a first date. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I used right? to just be really right? like firm about or, that. Like, you know, we're not going, like going further you, yeah. yeah, until, until right? I see everything, but you know, now I, I feel like, yeah, I'm a little, yes.
2: I, I'll take it a little more slowly. Right, and maybe second, third day, right? Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't used like you know the six inch ruler in a long time. Like, first <laughs> right.
0: I know forever. it's it's funny. It yeah. seems like it's mostly guys who are doing that. Right.
1: So, <laughs> so what about you know the idea like we we mentioned like a guy on a first date like, what about the notion that genitals are kind of the determinant of of our gender or our, our identity as people, kind of.
2: Yeah, um, that's something that we lay on to people, and it's a bit toxic, isn't it? That we would like insist on that as some kind of expectation, when in reality, with intimacy and interpersonal communication, it actually doesn't matter. And when you look at studies that look at what people with penises are interested in and the people who interact with them you know, they, they want the intimacy. They want that connection as much as they want anything else. I mean, anybody who has, yeah, anybody who has sexual experience knows that there's so much more to it Than the genitalia, first of all, right? Yes. And there's so much more to becoming comfortable with somebody and really getting to just like party down, right, in the way that you want to, because you're comfortable enough with that intimacy to do it. So
0: speaking of partying down, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Jeffrey Epstein, who comes up a number (sighs) Mm -hmm. of times in your book as, you know, a villain, and also kind of a, a someone who is a, a misleader uh, in the field of science. And I wonder if you could talk about how his work and his life have shaped modern ideas about penises and evolution.
2: Um, he's, he kind of exemplifies this idea that um, my, male men are supposed to go around and seed <laughs> people and that that's supposed to be the evolutionary drive for them. And he, because of his money he could walk into rooms full of men who ought to have known better and offer money or apparent support of money and they didn't ask him to leave even though they knew what a wretched human being he was and what a criminal he was and i think those two things intersect in a way that male scientists by and large have asked the questions and decided how they're going to be answered And Epstein was just an example of that and an example of how money can fuel all of it. And I think it's time for us to let other people ask and answer these questions. As my book points out, we have a lot less information about vaginas in general than we do about penises because there has been so much focus on it. And this kind of evolutionary psychology focus on these questions has always seemed to come from the male perspective, almost always. And Epstein was very into that kind of thing.
0: And he was funding a lot of that research.
2: Yeah, he was. He wanted this to serve his purposes, which, you know, are, are unspeakable.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how, I mean, and you point this out in the book, that he used science as a kind of, you know, a way of dressing up what he was doing in a kind of legitimacy. You know, he was like, well, it's not it's not just molesting a bunch of girls. In fact, this is, you know... Whatever.
2: Evolution, evolution makes me want to do this. It shapes my psychology so that I will want to seed young girls, you know, and they will bear my fruit, you know, and it, these questions get asked because certain people are looking for a kind of legitimacy to w- what they want to do and they want to have the language of science and putative scientific results to support it.
0: Yeah, and he didn't have a duck penis. So he was just, that was the wrong...
2: I've heard things about his penis, but it didn't sound very duckish. No. no.
0: So let's turn this around and talk about, um, before we wind up here, talk about positive directions. Like where where do we go next in these kinds of studies to really, to, to understand vaginas, to understand penises in their proper place?
2: First of all, there are labs. Um, so entomologists are pretty good about looking at vaginas a lot of the time because of that co-evolution between the inframidum and the uh, receptomitum. (laughs) 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 Um, Where should we go is that first of all, we need to have more women have access to these halls of science and be able to stay in them so that then we get questions from people who are not the white the historically white male bastions of science. When we get that, a lot will follow. You may have noticed in the book that oh, the people who were looking at vaginas <laughs> and made breakthrough discoveries of vaginas and vertebrates were women. You know, and still kind of tend to be. The other thing is is kind of we need a detox in our culture from this expectation that the penis makes the man and the man makes the penis because not all men have penises and not all people with yeah. penises are men. <laughs> yes and <laughs> and also we need to stop conflating this single body part with the whole human being i have seen people say when somebody walks into a starbucks carrying an ar15 for example they'll say oh small dick energy there and i think you know we really need to stop thinking, oh, this is because of the size of this man's penis. This is because of a lot of toxicity in our culture that made him think that this is something he needed to do to perform. We need to get past that.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to acknowledge that doing this is diminishing male people as yes. well as building them up that there's this kind of this way in which, yeah, if you fold everything into penis anxiety, you don't ever learn what the real problem is because it's not about dicks.
2: Yeah, I agree 100%. I have three sons, and I absolutely do not want them diminished to just a body part like that, ever. Yeah,
1: they have lots of other good body parts. sort of dehumanizing. I mean, you know, part of what makes human beings so complex and awesome is the whole totality of who we are and not just, you know, this kind of, yeah, this one body part and this one process.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I really think we need to focus on our minds and and what we have let seep into them and what we let ourselves express.
0: That's a great place to end. Emily, can you tell our listeners where they can find your work um, online and in the real world?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The book itself publishes on September 22nd. As everybody knows, pre-orders are extremely important. It is available at all the usual places. I encourage Indie buys if you can. Yay. I'm on Twitter at EJ Willingham. And I have a website where I just put up things where I, I frequently contribute to Scientific American, Medscape, places like that. And that is com. That's where you can find me.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here thank and you. talking
2: dicks. That was
0: great. <laughs> talking thank intromita, you. which is my yeah. new favorite genital. Well, I thank guess- Thank you for having me. Yeah. I like all genitals, but intromita seems like a good <laughs> umbrella term for- Yay, for, genitals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have a segment we call Research Hole. Come fall in with us. So, Charlie Jane, tell me about a research hole that you fell headlong into
1: So I've been recently reading up on a horror and sort of dark fantasy author named Leonard Klein, C-L-I-N-E, who, among other things, murdered his friend in a house just down the street from the house I grew up in, in Connecticut, in, I think, 1927. Okay, so not when you were living there? (laughs) No, slightly before my time. (laughs) He was staying at this house, hanging out with his bestie, Wilfred Irwin. And they had a they got drunk and had a quarrel and Leonard Klein shot William uh, Wilfred Irwin, who died a few hours later of his wounds. Uh, Leonard Klein went to prison for manslaughter, but was let out after eight months for good behavior and but then died of a heart attack sometime later and he you know he was a newspaper journalist who worked for the Baltimore Sun and a bunch of other papers and wrote for the Nation. You know, after he got out of prison for murdering his friend, he got a job at Time Magazine immediately, like Henry Luce decided to kind of take pity on him and give him a job. And he wrote plays, but he's best known for these novels that he wrote, the first one of which is called The Godhead, which is a novel that I think is really hard to find nowadays. But when it was published in like 1926 or 1925, it was widely praised and regarded as a literary masterpiece. And there's actually, online, there's a great review of it from the Harvard Crimson, talking about how, much like the poor, first novels are always with us, but this is a novel that is like, more memorable and exciting than six out of 10 of the best novels. It's like very confusing. (laughs) Anyway, so The Godhead is about this guy who decides that he wants to become a god or he wants to become super powerful. So he moves to this small town on the shore of Lake Superior where the elements have randomly carved like a scowling, angry face into the side of the mountain nearby. And he decides to terrorize the townspeople By, like, reminding them of all of their Finnish superstitions. They're all Finnish people. And he sort of delves into all of the superstitions and traditions of Finland to try to drive all the townspeople mad. And in the end, the scowling face of the side of the mountain comes to life and starts, like, singing and everything goes fucking insane. In Finnish? I don't know if it sings in Finnish. That's a really good question. I think it just This is a really
0: targeted form of terror, I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know Finnish people are going to be really freaked out you know and I actually read a bunch of Finnish you know weird stories in the last few years and the Finns do love their weird dark fantasy like they're, that's a thing with them and uh, there's actually a great uh, anthology of like Finnish dark fantasy so he followed that up with a weird kind of comic novel called Listen Moon with an exclamation mark which is about a <laughs> I don't know what it's about, um, but then his masterpiece, the book that kind of put him on the map right before he died, was this book called The Dark Chamber, mm. which is about this guy named Richard Pride who, much like the protagonist of The Godhead, Richard Pride wants to sort of become a superior person. And so he decides that the key is to recover all of his earliest memories by bringing a musician, who is the main character of the book, to his house to play music for him that will force him to re-experience his past memories. And basically, everybody in the house, wait for it, goes mad. (laughs) I thought you were going to say they were all finished. (laughs) (laughs) They all turn finish. No, they all go bad. The dog, the how the dog in the house goes feral. People commit suicide. People run away. People elope. There's a lot of eloping. Mm. And finally the main character like gets away and marries the guy's daughter, but he comes back and finds that the guy, Richard Pride, has been killed by his dog, who he killed in turn. Like him and the dog killed each other at the exact same time. And so it's like basically another novel about how if you tamper with dark forces, you know, shit will happen. Mm -hmm. And HP Lovecraft loved... The Dark Chamber and kind of lavished praise on it in his book about the supernatural. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of the main reason why people remember Leonard Klein now as like somebody who was kind of an influence or a contemporary of, of Lovecraft. But unlike Lovecraft, he actually was a murderer and also a journalist. So he was a pretty interesting guy. Emily, what's your research hole?
0: It, there are no fins or or murders. I, I actually, I just want to say- are there? I That's a good question. I don't understand how- Klein got away with murdering someone and only going to prison for eight months and then got immediately got a job at Time magazine. Like,
1: I, you know, good behavior. I, I'm so confused.
0: Anyway, um,
1: <laughs> that's I think I guess, if you're drunk, I think if you're drunk, it's just like whatever you were drunk. Yeah. You know. That's,
0: You know, it's, it's rough justice, I guess, you know, yeah, Connecticut.
1: Probably had it coming. Yeah. Connecticut's a rough and tumble state, man.
0: Yeah, I I think that's something to do with it. So I have been going on a research hole because of this study that came out a couple of weeks ago in the journal Population Studies. And the reason it really caught my imagination was it was looking at how basically people who are Gen X, like people who are in their 40s and 50s now, how their health compares to their parents' generation, which is basically the baby boomer generation, people who are now in their 60s and and 70s. And people in that Gen X generation, uh, in this study, which was it was done in England. And it was a survey of about 135,000 people. So a huge survey um, that's done annually in England, that's the health survey. So people who were in that Gen X group reported that they were living longer but they were sicker than their than the previous generation that they just reported in their middle age having more chronic health problems but like i said they were surviving longer and the thing that was really chilling about the study cuz at first i was just like oh it's just like cranky gen xers like saying that they're sick you know more often than the more stoic elder generation which is like well Yes, it's true that half my face fell off, but I'm, you know, powering through and like it's, you know, it's no big thing. But actually this study was accompanied by actual data on health. Like nurses were were checking people's health and so their self-reporting was going right alongside reporting from health professionals saying like nope, actually this this generation of people is more sick than their parents generation. They're suffering from cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, hypertension, a lot of diseases that are associated with poor eating habits, um, partly because, you know, now the cheapest foods tend to be um, high in fat. And so those those can cause, you know, that can cause hypertension and, and a lot of other things. So basically, the picture that we get from this large British study is that people who are getting older now, people who are in their middle age now are just less healthy than previous generation. And it goes against kind of our stereotype of how these things work. You know, we think, you know, every generation is healthier, you know, because medical technology is getting so much better. And, you know, we don't have these terrible things that our grandparents had, like we don't die of, you know, a broken leg, um, because we have antibiotics, but it does seem like things are getting worse. And the really creepy part, like I said, is that the Gen X group that's sicker is living longer. So they're living longer, shittier lives than baby boomers, uh, are living. And so I don't know, it got me thinking about a lot of stuff. I mean, it, it got me thinking about how, like I said, that there's, we have this idea And I think it comes out of science fiction, partly, that the future, unless we go into like a dark dystopia, that the future is always better and that the technology is always making things better. Um, And that's not necessarily true. And even as our technology is getting better, that isn't actually helping people to lead healthier lives, Um, which is another topic that really stood out to me in this study, uh, or another, I shouldn't say topic, another issue that stood out. Um, and also a lot of these issues that people are having, like I said, like diabetes and hypertension, that doesn't really come from, you know, medicine, not advancing. It comes from, you know, preventative care, not being terrifically good. It comes a lot from just sort of the management of our healthcare and mm-hmm. that, you know, we actually do have the knowledge and the medicine to prevent a lot of these conditions from getting bad, but people just don't have access to them um, either because of poverty or lack of education or lack of healthcare.
1: So I have a couple of questions. First of all, how do we know that Gen Xers are living longer if the Gen X generation is, is still middle-aged? And the other question is, could this be partly because baby boomers had access to secure jobs with like Better healthcare, health insurance when they were during their prime work years versus Gen Xers who kind of go from job to job and don't really have, you know, steady health insurance?
0: I think those are really good questions. So basically, the way that they were calculating life expectancy had to do with just how many people were alive. Like, so in other words, like people were living longer, like we saw more people that we're reaching middle age in that Gen mm, X group. Okay. And so, and then it's just a projection, right? Like, so it's, they're just assuming that that these, that there's more people surviving to a certain point means that more people will survive another 20 years. Um, so people are surviving longer. People are surviving into their, into their middle age. It's more common for people to survive into middle age, I should say, but uh, in poorer health. And I think it could really be the case that, This has to do with job security. Uh, We know in the United States that um, hypertension and um, cardiovascular disease are correlated with job instability and poverty and downward mobility. And that's why, for example, Black communities have such a high rate uh, of both of those, of cardiovascular and hypertension, cardiovascular disease and hypertension. And then that also gets into questions around treatment as well, because this group of people that they studied were British, you know, and national healthcare system in England is being chipped away at and eroded, you know, what we could be seeing there is also just, you know, a failing national healthcare system or, or a national healthcare system that is not as robust as it was during their parents' generation. You know, there's a lot going into this. And I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, if you were a science fiction writer and you were thinking about world building, Uh, In the context of this study, you'd want to ask all those questions like, what are the social factors? What are the Mm -hmm. factors in the healthcare? Are people, in fact, not getting access to technologies like statins that help people with high blood pressure and things like that? Yeah, I mean, it's all that stuff. It's super complex. I don't know. It was really interesting. I keep thinking about the study, it's haunting me. I wonder if that means that millennials are going to have an even shittier (laughs) quality of
1: life. Live long and don't prosper. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's like we may be really heading into, you know, the world from that uh, Torchwood miniseries when everybody was oh, man. living. I mean, it was a, it was a complicated. Miracle day. Miracle day. It was, it was an uneven, it was an uneven miniseries, but definitely the horror at the center of it was this idea that people didn't die, but they, they still got sick and they still were injured. And so there were all these people who couldn't die, but were like literally immobile and like all their bones were broken. And like,
1: it was just <sighs> That was such a powerful, horrible image. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So anyway, on that cheerful note, we've had some murder, we've had some, you know, declining health outcomes for younger generations Anyway, thanks so much for listening.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you. We'll be we'll be way more uplifting next time, we promise. Yeah,
0: so you've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Um, we would love it if you would check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. For just a couple dollars, you can get all kinds of nifty things like audio extras and essays and writing prompts and a chance to just chit chat with other people who are following the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod, and you can find us wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because you know the drill. It helps people find us. This episode was recorded at Women's Audio Mission here in San Francisco. Our producer is the amazing Veronica Simonetti. And the music comes from Chris Palmer. And Mm -hmm. we will be back. No, we'll be back in two weeks. And we'll be talking to you then.
1: Bye. Bye.